<laughs> oh, is, is it Sunday? Sunday again. Oh, for have, do I have to preach this service? Oh, my gosh. Well, that was awkward. Fell asleep in church. Okay, uh, what time is it even? I don't, oh, for heaven's sakes, we got to do this again. All right. Uh, <laughs> welcome to Liquid. Uh, looks like we're, oh, okay, we're going to preach on Revelation. Do you, I don't even remember. I'm a little foggy. What, uh, what week is this in the Revelation series? Is this week five? Oh, are, are we talking about the church at Sardis, the, the slumbering church? The church that gets a wake-up call from Jesus? Come on, you got to like puns. Let's hear it for the puns. Come on, you got to wake up. Wake-up call today, Liquid Church. Wake-up call. How many of you have ever fallen asleep in church? Be honest right now. Show of hands. That's, a, that's more participation than last week. I just want to acknowledge that. That's funny. We are going to start as a slumbering church. If you're just joining us, uh, we're studying the first three chapters of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. Today we get in chapter three, uh, in which the resurrected Jesus, he, he sends seven letters to these seven churches in seven cities in Asia. It follows the mail route, starts at Ephesus, hooks around at Pergamum, Thyatira, we looked at last week. Uh, and if you remember, Thyatira was the tolerant church, right? A church who kind of tolerated sin. They compromised with the culture around them. And Jesus had these very strong words of correction. Jesus is either congratulating a church, great job at this, or he's uh, condemning it. You got to fix this. Today, we get to the city known as Sardis and see what Jesus has to say to sleepy Christians. He actually does say, wake up twice in this letter out of their spiritual slumber. Now, we have a, a bunch of study guides um, that our small groups have been using to follow along. Have you enjoyed your small groups, by the way? I hope you really, yeah, let's hear for our small group leaders. They do an amazing job. Um, I hope it's been sparking some rich dialogue as you kind of prayer, you know, pray together and process what is the Spirit saying to you. Uh, if you have your guide, we're on page 29 today. We're going to read Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis. So this is Revelation 3, uh, starting with verse 1. Here's what he writes. He says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who hold the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being, let's read all the words in bold out loud today. Big, loud voice. Ready? Being alive, but you are dead. So wake up. Oh, I love it. Uh, now, I appreciate your honesty saying, yeah, you fell asleep in church. I actually have no judgment for you as a pastor. I grew up in a church like that. In fact, this is what I looked like as a kid, okay? <laughs> Every Sunday, I'd get 90 minutes of shut-eye, little nap. During the so sermon, I'd kind of doze off. And uh, whenever I did that in church, I would remember, because I'd be like, you know, falling asleep. And my mom, she always nudged me. She'd go, Timmy, wake up. And if she said, Timmy, you knew it meant business. You know, she's like, Timmy, wake up. And I'd be like, huh? And I would look down the row, and I would see my father, and his eyes were shut, and his head would be, you know, start bobbing, doing this. And so I would go, Dad, wake up. And it was great, because he would never open his eyes, but he would just go, shh, I'm praying. It just kind of, that's, that's how he got away with that, you know? Uh, Sardis was a church full of sleepy Christians, spiritual sleepwalkers. In fact, they were so fast asleep that Jesus said, you actually look like you're dead. Look at verse one. He says, I know your deeds. That's a familiar term. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, this is interesting because Sardis had this reputation that they were full of energy and vitality. They were thriving. In fact, that's what the city of Sardis was known for. A little historical background. Sardis was the capital city 
of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. That's what you're looking at here. Very wealthy city, super prosperous, very affluent. What you're looking at is their gymnasium. This is basically their YMCA, okay? So if you went there today, it's a six-acre complex. It's absolutely stunning. Uh, This is where the young men would go for their classes. Uh, They would go for their exercise. They'd study philosophy and medicine and the arts. And Sardis was known for not just education, but its wealth. They had tremendous mineral assets. So they had gold and silver uh, were the minerals that were mined there. And Sardis was actually the first city in the ancient world to mint coins out of gold and silver. This is the first coin in human history. Guess where it came from? Sardis. So if you have a, a quarter in your pocket, you have Sardis to thank. They were the first to say, hey, let's mold those gold and silver and use them for the treasury of our government. So just like the city of Sardis, the church there was prosperous. They were affluent. They had spiritual vitality. They were rich in faith, once upon a time full of life and energy. But somewhere along the way, they'd grown complacent or arrogant. Faith that was once alive had kind of dried up. And Jesus says, actually, you're, you're dead. You've become lifeless. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Translation, the spirit has left the building. You remember, the, the, you remember hearing, you know, Elvis has left the building. <laughs> That's how you know the concert's over. The spirit has left the building, meaning the church is over. And that leads us to this question. What do you do when your reputation no longer reflects reality? What happens when there's a gap between what you once were known for, your reputation, and what you are now in reality? This has happened at a restaurant in our town. Uh, it's about 10 years ago. A new restaurant came in our town, kind of like Panera. It wasn't, you know, like where they serve coffee and bread and sandwiches and stuff. It wasn't Panera. I won't tell you the initials. Well, I'll tell you the initials. ABC, okay, or the initials of this place. And this was before the no-carb craze. And so, like, everyone went crazy for it because it's like, woo, you know, you know fresh-baked loaves of bread, and you could get, like, soup in a bowl, all that, or in a bread bowl and all that. And it was packed in the morning. You would go into this thing, and uh, you would have moms with their strollers and kids. You'd have businessmen getting their coffee. Uh, you'd have college kids in there. And it was like very exciting in our town because it was like they had this very warm atmosphere. They had like, you know, rich woodwork and pendant lighting. They had excellent service. The management was very friendly. They actually would remember your name. And pretty high quality food. It was fast food, but it was always served warm. And so they had a very, very strong reputation. And business boomed for the first 18 months after the grand opening, Okay. But then I noticed things kind of started to slide a little bit, you know, like slipping in service, like nothing dramatic at first, small stuff, like the tables were no longer being bussed. You ever have that? Like you order your thing, you go get your food, and then there are tables, but like everyone else's garbage is on them. So you're like, oh, okay, great. Let me clear off your crap, and then I can come and eat my food. Not a deal breaker, but annoying. Then I like bite into a sandwich, and I'm like, this egg sandwich is ice cold, you know, and it's uncooked. And so I go to, you know, the the counter. I'm like, I'm sorry, this is cold. And she's like, how cold is it? I'm like, well, about as cold as your personality, uh, actually. Can you heat it? And the cashier was like, Carl, step to the side. The manager will deal with you in a minute. Next. Like, deal with me. And over time, there was a slow, steady decline in the quality, the service, the cleanliness the complete opposite of the first 18 months. After the grand opening, stellar reputation. But after five years, reality hits. And we began to say, hey, you want to meet at ABC for coffee? And people were like, no, no, don't go there anymore. And sure enough, it's no longer there. Went out of business, closed up shop, left town. Have you ever been to a restaurant like that? Where there was this gap between reputation and reality. 
It is sad when that happens to a restaurant, but it is tragic when it happens in a church. This is what happened in Sardis. Jesus said, you have a reputation of being alive, but in reality, you're dead. And this is the worst thing you could ever say about a church, that it's a dead church, right? It's like Sixth Sense Church. I see dead people. <laughs> By definition, a church is supposed to be alive. It's where God lives. A church is where Christ lives. It's where the Spirit lives, right? As believers, we've been given new life in Christ. By definition, a church is a living fellowship of people who possess eternal life, not Sardis. Jesus is like, oh, this church? This church, come on, camera people, follow along with me. This church is like DOA, a spiritual corpse. Let's have a funeral. That church is lifeless. You ever wonder how that happens to a church? I'm sure you're driven by churches in your town or your neighborhood that were like that. You're like, I don't even know if that place is open anymore, you know? A few years ago, I was uh, asked to come speak at a church in South Jersey. They, um, it was a church that had a reputation for like back in the day, like booming with young people and young families. And I assumed it still was. And they said, hey, could you come down because we're having trouble reaching the next generation. And so I drove down, you know, one weekend, Garden State Parkway. I pulled up to the address and I see this church, but there's literally no one in the parking lot. There's, there's one car in the parking lot in the far back. And I was like, maybe I have like the wrong address or something. So I go to the gas station across the street. Exxon Station. I was like, excuse me, could you help me? Is that church, you know, XYZ Church? And the gas guy goes, I have no idea. I've never seen anyone go in or out. I go, really? I said, anyone ever come over here? He goes, no, no, no. He goes, I've been here seven years. He goes, I don't even know if it's open. No one from there has ever come over here. So I go over, I tried the doors and actually was open. I walked in and there were 17 people in the auditorium. And so I gave my little talk about how to reach the next generation and the whole time, my heart was breaking because there's this giant room full of empty, cavernous pews. And I was, could not stop thinking, how does a church that was once alive and thriving, it was on mission with Jesus, lose momentum in slow and steady decline to the point that the gas station guy across the street didn't even know if it was open anymore? I'm guessing you have seen a church like that. Maybe you have one in your town, you drive by one on your way to work, where you're like, is there a congregation there? Uh, or is it, maybe it's just a preschool or a yoga class. Maybe it's like a Zumba studio. I don't even know anymore, right? You have a reputation, Jesus says, of being alive, but in reality, you're dead. Guys, reality is hard. Reality right now in the church in North America is very difficult. The reality is right now in North America, the church is on a slow and steady decline. The numbers are jarring. Let me show you reality. Reality is every year, over 3,500 churches in America close their doors. I want you to think about that. Do the math. On average, that's over 300 churches every month that close up shop. 60 churches every week. Today, as we sit here, 10 churches will close their doors for good. Of the existing churches in America, 80% of all churches are plateaued or declining in numbers, okay? That's reality. It's not just individual churches. Entire denominations are closing their doors. As they let go of biblical truth and only embrace social causes and drift farther and farther from Christ, it's tragic. So understand, American church, welcome to Sardis. Jesus is like, you have a reputation of being alive, but in reality, you are dead. So wake up before it's too late. 
Guys, may God save us from ever experiencing that kind of fate. God forbid we ever grow complacent in our faith at liquid and the spirit departs and we end up on the coroner's couch. I mean, you, are part, you understand, you're not part of something normal. That's normal, 80%. You're part of the spirit moving and God doing a fresh work. But I'm like, that could be us if we don't listen to what Jesus says here to Sardis. How many of you have ever watched the TV show CSI? You've seen the, the, the crime show, right? You kind of know how that goes, right? It's the TV show where they do an autopsy on the victim, right? Like they got, the, the show starts with a dead body and they're like, okay, I wonder what killed him or her, you know? Now we don't know a lot about Sardis, but if you performed an autopsy on the dying church, Jesus actually gives some clues about what you would discover. If you're taking notes, there are six signs of a dead or dying church, according to Jesus here in Revelation 3. Sign number one the Spirit has left the building. And by that, I mean the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1. Look at the greeting Jesus gives. Again, this is a unique greeting. He says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the, what's it say? Seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You ever wonder what he means by the seven spirits of God? Like, I thought there was only one Holy Spirit, okay? When you come to something you don't understand the Bible, what you do is you find another part of the Bible that explains it or interprets it. So we know seven is a sign of completion in Revelation, but if you go to Isaiah 11 in the Old Testament, it tells us that the Holy Spirit, although one, has multiple aspects. Look what it says in Isaiah 11. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. How many? Seven. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is one, but he has seven different ministries, right? Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear. So one Holy Spirit, but a sevenfold ministry. So when Jesus opens, he says, this is the one who holds the seven spirits. He's talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He's like, it's me, Jesus, who possesses the full spirit. It's me, Jesus, who sends the Holy Spirit to fill Christians. It's me, Jesus, who fills my church with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. If you have a choice between a church that is rich and powerful, but there's no spirit, or dirt poor but spirit-filled, you take the church that's poor every single time. Amen? Because that means they have the manifest power and presence of God, and that church has everything it needs. Last Sunday, did you feel it? I mean, there was a palpable sense, like, I feel the Holy Spirit in this room. Did you feel that? It was a heavy message, but I felt the power of the Holy Spirit as I was preaching. Heavy message, hard message but I know the Holy Spirit was speaking to many of you, convicting some, comforting others. One guy came to me, he said, Tim, that was, that was, I go, I know, it was a heavy message. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, it was good. He goes, I felt convicted, but I didn't feel condemned. Guys, that's the spirit of Christ, right? Where you accept everybody, but we don't approve of everything. And the Holy Spirit then manifests this very sweet spirit of repentance, where all of a sudden God's truth gets shined into these shadowy parts of our heart, and then believers walk in the light. Guys, may we always be a spirit-filled church. I, I, the, may our outward success, the idea like, oh, look, people come to that church, you know, and it's growing. May that never deceive us into thinking we can do this ourselves, right? That somehow we've like, oh, no, we, you know, we got a good band and we mastered ministry and we can do services. That's probably what happened to Sardis. As a rich, affluent church, they stopped depending on the Spirit's power and started relying on man's strength. 
Let me tell you guys, the moment liquid starts relying on man's strength, rather than God's spirit, close the doors, stick a fork and it lights out, we're done. The spirit has left the building. Now the antidote to a spirit-less church is actually pretty obvious. It's spirit-filled Christians. <laughs> what that means is, as a believer, you have access to the sevenfold spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is in you. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on people. In the New Testament, the Spirit is in people. So here's a question we want you to discuss in your small group this week. On page 31 of your group's guide, it says this. This is so good. Notice how the Spirit of God is at work in us. Without the Spirit's work in your life, you are powerless to change. Stott, this is John Stott, he's a British theologian. Stott concludes, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, but does he fill you? You possess the Holy Spirit, but does he possess you? I love that question, right? So as Christ followers, we possess the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit possess us? In other words, is more and more of your thoughts being uh, taken over by the Spirit of God, not your own feudal understanding? Are your actions being more and more animated and dictated by the Spirit of Christ, or is it your own self-will? A spiritless church is a dead church, symptom number one of a dying church. The second symptom is there's no passion for prayer. This goes hand in hand. If you want to take the pulse of a church, just see how its ministry of prayer is. Because a prayerless church is a powerless church. Just like a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. So when you, you see a church that's unusual in that it is having impact, it is pushing back the darkness, a church that's taking ground for God's kingdom. When you see a church moving mountains in Jesus' name, you will see that church is fighting from its knees. Amen? Let me tell you something that touched my heart last week. When I arrived at church last week, I saw a stirring sight in this room. It was before anybody else had arrived. The auditorium was empty, except for 15 people who were walking throughout, touching every seat with their eyes closed and speaking. Guess who it was? Your prayer team. Your prayer team arrived at this church, at your campus, and they walk throughout the room for a half hour for a service, praying over the seats you're sitting in right now. Does that mean anything to you? When you hear God speaking to you, when you, when you feel the conviction, when, when you experience healing, that's the power of prayer at work. We have prayer warriors at every campus. They, they operate in the gifts of the Spirit. We've seen healings, we've seen breakthroughs, we've seen miraculous favor, financial provision, I've always wondered, like, why don't more people, like, after the service, we always have the prayer team up here come pray with you. Some of you are like, oh, I don't know if I go up there. I'm, you know, who knows? I might get shocked. Stick your finger in the socket, people, okay? It's incredible. We have people who their gift is intercession with God. And God is your father. And the father says, I am moved by the passionate prayer of my children. So here's a question for you. How's your prayer life? Would you describe it as alive? Or is it sleepy? <laughs> Or is it dead, non-existent? <laughs> Jesus says, wake up. You do an autopsy on a dead church, you'll find there's no passion for prayer. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. The other thing it, this kind of leads to, it says here, is that there's no ear for the truth. Because when you stop praying, you start, stop listening as well. In 2 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul, he, he writes a letter actually to the early church. And he says this, for a time is coming, this is a prediction, see if it came true or not. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their what? Itching ears want to hear. 
Here's a sign of a dead church or a dying church. It has itchy ears. You guys know what itchy ears are? Turn to your neighbor. Itch their ears right now. Go ahead. Don't, no, don't do it, dude. <laughs> I love it. This guy just turns to his wife. He's like, sticks his fan, sticks a finger in there. <laughs> you know what itching ears means? It means I only like to hear things that make me feel good. Yeah? I only like advice and counsel that supports my view of the world. I only like to listen to prosperity preachers tell me how good I am and how God wants to bless me financially. But I don't want to feel convicted. I don't want to be called to anything requiring sacrifice. That's the church in America. We have itchy ears. But the truth is, we worship a guy who got crucified and commands us to pick up our cross and follow him. So at the heart of Christianity is a cross and a message of self-sacrifice and denial. That's a message the church in America has a hard time hearing because we prefer itchy ears, right? Instead of being hard on sin, we're kind of soft on the flesh because preachers, honestly, a lot of us, a lot of them, I'll include myself, they get afraid of offending anybody because if I say repent, maybe it will make people feel uncomfortable. But do you know what true spirit-filled preaching does? Spirit-filled preaching, listen to this, comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Which are you today? God's word comforts the afflicted, gives hope to people who are hurting. But it also afflicts the comfortable, people who are complacent. It makes them uncomfortable. Last Sunday, we saw the Holy Spirit move in power. Some people were comforted, others were afflicted. I'm just glad you came back. <laughs> I was like, is anybody going to show up today, you know? The time's coming when people won't longer listen to sound teaching. They'll just follow their own desires, look for teachers, tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Guys, I love you too much to just tell you what you want to hear. You want the truth, right? If you have a relationship with somebody, and you're like, I only tell them what they want to hear. Do you love them? No, you're just manipulating them. But if you're a parent, you understand, no, I need to tell them the truth because the truth, Jesus says, will set you free. Grace wins, but truth is relevant. When you lose your ear for the truth, you start tolerating sin like Thyatira. That's the fourth symptom of a dying church, tolerance of sin. Uh, have you guys started noticing there's a progression of these churches, like they're not random, right? We've got the seven stars here, right? So think of the order that we've gone in. We started with Ephesus. What was their big problem? She says, you have forsaken your first love. So your passion for God has gone away. And by the time we get to Pergamum, it's like you're compromising with the culture because when you don't love God, your affections are going to go towards the world. That's just how that works. And then last week, we get to Thyatira, who's basically sleeping with the enemy. Uh, they're not only like tolerating sin, they're like celebrating it. They're like, oh, good, Jezebel is here. Let's get in bed with her. Come on, we're going to have a sleepover, Jezebel. Let's get on in here. That is woo-woo, no, right? By the time you get to Sardis, it's DOA, dead on arrival. Jesus is like, there is no life left in this church. This is the corpse. This is zombie church, <laughs> okay? Now, listen to this. This is important, guys. This is how a church dies, little by little and then all at once as it becomes more and more conformed to the world so that it's indistinguishable from the world. And that's why Jesus says, repent. Look what he says here in verse two and three here to Sardis. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So in other words, it's not all dead. There's a few things still left. For I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. 
Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and what? Repent. Repent. There's that word again. It makes me so uncomfortable. (laughs) Repent. (laughs) Ah, right? Doesn't it make you like, oh, gosh, because it feels a little like the guys on the street corner, right, in Times Square. Turn or burn. Repent, right? You don't want to be like a judgy jerk. And yet, this is the word Jesus uses over and over and over in Revelation. Repent means to change your mind. Think a new thought about God. Start with this thought. You're not God. He's God. And Christ is the eternal one, and he's returning as a judge. So I want you to think a new thought. That maybe God, in sending Jesus, doesn't want to judge you, but is trying to save you. And if you're willing to do a 180, that's what repent means, I do a U-turn. You change your mind, and then guess what? It will change your heart. When you change your heart, it will change your hands. You'll start living differently. So many people start with the hands. They think Christianity is a call to be a more moral person. Oh, I got to, you know, think the right thoughts and get, you know, clean up my act. And it never works. There has to be a change of heart. The Holy Spirit has to move in your heart and your affections change. You realize the grace of God. I deserve, I'm like, I am dirt and mud and deserve the fires of hell. And then Christ comes to me and he says, I'm going to cleanse all, I'm going to cleanse you completely. Adopt you in my family as a son or daughter. The grace of God says he accepts you even in the middle of your sin. So repent, think a new, new thought. A lot of people had this happen last week. Some people came forward, a guy said, uh, I, he goes, I want to confess my secret sin. I just realized today it's not secret. God knows it. He goes, and I felt all this guilt and shame. And as he prayed this prayer of repentance, he goes, I am finally free. If God doesn't judge me, who can? I heard from dozens of people on email who really resonated with our posture of compassion without compromise. That we, at Liquid, we love and accept everybody, all people. But we don't approve of everything they do or that I do or that you do. Only God is holy. Only Christ is perfect, so he sets the standard. What that means is we don't change the word of God. We invite the word of God to change us. Amen? Listen to this email. It's going to blow you away. Um, I got this email from a couple in our church who are engaged. They're living together. They moved in, uh, like many couples do today, right? That's just like an accepted practice in the West. Uh, but the Bible teaches one of the ways that you honor God is by waiting till you're married in God's sight to start living like a married couple, okay? That idea sounds old-fashioned in our culture. It offends some people. I get that. So I almost fell out of my chair when I read their email So this couple writes, Hi, Tim, my fiancé and I want to thank you for your message on Sunday. We were at the first service today and certainly didn't look easy for you. Thank you. We wanted to write you because we felt convicted after your message. In the letter to the church of Thyatira, we firmly believe we cannot tolerate more than Christ and that our acceptance and unconditional love of all does not translate to approval. So for us, that starts at home. We were engaged last August and we're planning a wedding for October 2018 year and a half from now. But we're committed to Christ and to each other, and we want to know if we could be baptized and married under God now and not wait for the traditional ceremony with extended family and friends. In other words, this couple living together said, we love each other, but we love Christ more. And although we're living together, we want to make this right in God's sight. They want, we're going to get marry them next week. They started planning their wedding on Thursday. That's an incredible thing. That's unusual, right? Like that doesn't happen a lot. They had an ear to hear and they had a heart to act. That is so inspiring to me, guys, because that's a a sign the Spirit's alive and well. 
That's the fruit of repentance, that your heavenly father loves you. And when you submit to his ways, even the ways that are hard, he honors them. He blesses that. Do you think they're going to receive the blessing of God? That, that decision they're making now will ripple out for years to come in ways they don't even know at this point. So let me ask you this. That's their story. What's yours? Is there an area of your life where you know that God is asking you to repent? to make a difficult decision to honor him. But you're saying, oh, I don't know, that'd be hard. Um, Maybe later. We all know what later means, right? Later means no. (laughs) Later means never. (laughs) That's how it is with my kids. One of the things we always teach them. Delayed obedience. Do you know what the name for delayed obedience is? Disobedience. Delayed obedience is really disobedience. Uh, Hey, guys, I want you to get off your Xbox. We're going to start homework, okay? Uh, Later, Dad. That means no. (laughs) Delayed obedience is really disobedience. And the problem is, was when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, listen to this. Did you know it's possible to quench the Holy Spirit? Like God's speaking, but if you don't answer, God's like, you're not answering, I'm not asking anymore. The Spirit will stop speaking to you. You'll actually put out the flame of God in your life. Because I don't, I ask like I want to, hear from the Spirit, but I'm not going to do what he says. And so God says, you're not answering? Then I'm not asking. Guys, there's no more scary moment when God stops taking your phone calls. So if the Spirit is speaking to you today about something in your life, or you just realize you're tolerating compromise, don't say later. Jesus says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. It's not dead yet. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. He tells them, remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Circle that word, remember. I think it's kind of interesting that their faith was not revitalized by learning something new, but by remembering something old. In America, everyone's like, I want to learn something new. And she's like, how about you just remember what I told you to start with and start living that out? Remember the grace of God, what you've received. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You just receive the love of God, and then you start walking in his truth. Don't tolerate sin. If you do, it is just a matter of time before there is division, factions, and infighting in a church. This is one of the central signs the church is about to kick the can. The presence of factions, divisions, and infighting, politics, petty debates. Honestly, it's why a lot of people are turned off from church. I was turned off by it as a kid. Uh, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Listen to what he wrote in his letter to them. He said, you're jealous of one another, and you do what? You quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? Do you know what sometimes kills a church? Christians. Especially quarreling ones. I'll tell you a funny story. It's kind of sad. So uh, my family was part of a church growing up that was very little, and uh, they got into a huge argument in the church over what color to paint the youth room. You know, they're like a room for like the youth group. And they're like, oh, let's empower the kids. And all the high school kids voted to paint it black. <laughs> and the head of the elders like, I think we all understand black is the color of El Diablo. It's the devil's color, you know? And the youth pastor was like, I don't know. I think we should, you know. And so it turned this whole big old blow explosive issue that actually called a churchwide meeting. Uh, and people got up and literally there was one side that was like, black is the color of the devil. 
And then the youth pastor, he's like, you know, trying to like, you know, stand behind the kids. He's like, yeah, but black is also the color of our Bibles, you know? And it's like, what? Oh, you know, no, it's devil. No, it's God. It's devil. God, blah, 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 blah. you know, a big explosive issue and power struggle. True story over what color to paint the youth room. And it ended by they painted it beige, right? So nobody's happy. And I think they talked about putting the youth pastor on probation. Like you're on double secret probation, right? <laughs> Guys, a divided church is a dying church because the devil is real. In, in the reality is it's easy pickings for him if he knows he can get Christians fighting among ourselves. He knows if he can do that, he will neutralize our testimony and watch the rest of the world goes to hell in a handbasket as we argue about the color of the carpet. Amen? I know some of you have been burned by this. Everybody heard as a pastor. I, some of you are here, and you were a victim. You saw this close up of infighting and division and power politics at your previous church. You've been burned. Maybe you're close behind the scenes, and, and, and you came to liquid. You're just hurt and wounded. I had one woman say to me, you know, Tim, we were burned so badly at our last church. It's all we can do to come to service and sit in the back row and not cry. She goes, because now I look back and I, I see like how dysfunctional it was. She's like, but I was, I was active. Uh, I was you know, before the fallout. And now I actually come to church and I feel guilty for not serving or being involved. Just hear my heart as your pastor. I want you to know this is a safe place to heal. This is not a perfect church. <laughs> we just try to be honest about that fact. This is the perfect place for imperfect people. So you take all the time that you need, Okay. There's no pressure. You sit and soak in the Holy Spirit and let him heal you up and get you back to health. And then when you're ready to get back out of the field, you let us know. But wait until you're healed up because we want a healthy, functional church. When you've come out of an explosive breakup like that, it's just kind of like getting a divorce. You don't get married right again. You have to take the time to step back and look at your own heart and say, ah, where, where was the blindness in me that kind of tolerated that? And what part did I play? And then once you get healed up, then you don't drag that dysfunction in. Because we want a functional, healthy, spirit-filled church that's unified by Christ, not full of division in politics and factions and infighting. Again, we don't know the full story of what went wrong in Sardis. But if you did an autopsy of this dead church, I believe that you would find that ultimately they stopped taking risks for the gospel. I've told you before, I believe faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Faith is just about taking risks and believing God's going to show up. Faith is taking the first step when God has not revealed the second one. And yet you step anyway because you believe that the Father is loving and he works all things together for good to those who love him. And so there's risk involved and faith is required. You know, I have a quote out of my desk that I wrote down 14 years ago. Uh, we weren't even a church yet. I don't think I've ever shared this with you. I wrote this down on a piece of paper, put it by my keyboard. It's been there for 14 years. It says, attempt something so big, it's bound to fail unless God intervenes. I remember writing that down 14 years ago before we even started this ministry. Like we had no idea what God was going to do, but I just knew I wanted to spend my life risking something big for God and being part of something that isn't explainable in human terms. That people go like, well, that's got to be God because that guy's not smart enough to do it. <laughs> that those people aren't strong enough. They're not skilled enough to do it on their own. That's got to be evidence of the fingerprints of God. Guys, our church has a big vision. By God's great, by his grace, we want to saturate the state of New Jersey 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just North Jersey. We want to go from the tip of the state to Cape May County. We want a beach campus, praise God, right? (laughs) We have six campuses right now. Guys, last Sunday, we're in a series on revelations about repentance and like the truth of God. We had 4,000 people last Sunday who heard the truth of God worshiping Jesus. Praise God for that. That is an awesome thing. That's incredible to me. I just never thought I'd be a part of a church like that. But watch, we live in a state of 9 million people. And so that means that you and I both have next door neighbors who have no idea that how much God loves them. Your neighbors have no idea that Christ died for them. They have no idea there's really a heaven, there's really a hell, and their destination depends on what they do with Jesus. And until they do, we're going to saturate the state or we're going to die trying. Amen? We want to attempt something so big it's bound to fail unless God intervenes. He's got to show up. Wouldn't it be amazing if someday we had a campus in every county? See, guys, the church dies when it stops taking risks for the gospel. That's our church family, so now personalize it for your family. What risks are you taking that require God's intervention? Like for your family, you know, is it, is it um, are you weighing like a career change where you're like, ah, oh, I feel like God's calling me to this, but I'd have to take a lower salary and he'd have to show up to make up the difference. Or he's calling you to expand your family. He's giving you a heart for uh, orphans or refugees. And you're like, uh, maybe we'll adopt one. But how would we do that? How would he get through all that paperwork and the, the finding? I don't know. How, God, you're going to have to show up. You're going to have to intervene. But I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to step out in faith. What requires faith right now in your journey with Jesus? Is it to say, you know what? Before we just keep heading down this track towards divorce, God... I feel you calling us to marriage counseling. And you're going to have to show up because I'll go, but he or she won't go. So Spirit, I'm going to ask you, would you soften their hearts so that we can have the intervention? For this to happen, God has to show up. There's no way we can accomplish this on our own. That's how Spirit-filled Christians live. Sardis stopped taking risks a long time ago. Think about all they lost. If we did our CSI autopsy, we'd be like, ooh, they no longer have the filling of the Spirit. They don't have an ear for truth. Let me see. Uh, yeah, no passion for prayer. And they do not believe that God moves boldly on his people's behalf anymore. Guys, may liquid never suffer the fate of this church. Amen? This year, we turned 10 years old. I feel like my passion's hotter than ever. Like, I want to set myself on fire and believe that God is going to move mountains. We're going to see that in our generation. Amen? May we always be faith-filled, risk-taking burn the plow believers, the kind who actually stand for the truth, stand counter to the culture, and we commit ourselves to something so big, it's bound to fail unless God intervenes. That is literally the wake-up call that I felt Jesus saying to our church, and we need to answer it. Because Jesus closes, if you do not wake up, I will come like a what? A thief, and you will not know at what time I'll come to you. That's a symbol of judgment. Jesus says, I will actually come when you don't expect it. And the question is, will I find you awake or asleep? In the case of Sardis, by the time they received this letter, there were only a a few faithful Christians left. Look at what verse 4 says. Jesus writes, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, meaning they haven't compromised with the culture. They'll walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who's victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. That's how it is in in dead and dying churches. I always found there's always a a handful, you know. 
a few faithful saints who still love Jesus, who still have a heart for their community, and they're still serving faithfully. That's the story of revival in our church. I think of the older saints at our campuses in Mountainside and Garwood. That's Union County. They're both Union County campuses. Those two churches gave us their buildings. You know how old they were together combined? Over 320 years old. (laughs) And they had a couple dozen people left. But those saints held fast to the gospel. They did something incredibly sacrificial. They literally died and donated their church to liquid. And I, I look at this and I'm like, that's that the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit over it. Since rebirthing these two, ch- these two churches as liquid campuses, it has exploded beyond what we could imagine. Last Sunday, they had over 1,000 people in Union County worshiping Jesus Christ. Can we hear it for them? That's incredible. When I look at that, wasn't part of our plans, but God had a couple dozen people. It's exploded to over 1,000. In New Jersey, that's called Revival. And it started with a few faithful saints in their 60s and 70s. That's the power of sacrifice. A church that's dying receives a second life. In Sardis, Jesus is like, there's a handful of believers left, and so Jesus honors them. He says, you haven't stained your clothes, meaning you haven't compromised with the culture. And he rewards them. And he says, here's a reward. Look at this verse. He says, they will walk with me dressed in what? Dressed in white, for they are worthy. I think you know by now in Revelation... Things are symbolic. What does the color white represent? When you go to a wedding and the bride wears white, it's a symbol of what? Purity, yeah? In Revelation, Jesus says, to all people who call my name, who believe in my death for their sin, in my resurrection for their life, they will wear white. This is how my father will see them cloaked in my perfection, in my purity. When Christ died on the cross, he didn't just forgive your sin. He gave you his righteousness, and it covers everything. You can say, and I feel guilty, I feel ashamed, there's things I've done, and God says, that's not how I see you. You're my son or daughter. You are robed in my righteousness. So now start living like it. Live like who you are. You've become a son or daughter of God, filled with the Holy Spirit. You have the righteousness of Christ. That means God sees you just as if you never sinned, and watch, just as if you always obeyed. You get the perfect record of Jesus credited to your account. And he says, this is your reward, the purity and perfection of Jesus. Did you know this is why a bride wears white? It comes from Revelation 19. There is the the wedding feast where Jesus comes for his church, the bride. And that's how the bride wears white. It's a symbol that says at a Christian wedding, when a woman, the, the, the woman who, no matter what she's done, what her background is, if she's repented of sin and received Christ's forgiveness, she gets to wear a white dress as a sign of purity. Why? Because Christ makes her clean. And that's what Christ has done with you. So Jesus says, walk with me. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm here to cleanse you. I'm here to make you into the son or daughter of God. You, I died to give you my identity. He says, the one who's victorious will be like them, dressed in white. And he finishes, I'll never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but it will acknowledge them, that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them what? Hear what the spirit is saying. Do you have ears to hear? Or do you have itchy ears? 
What is the Spirit saying to you? Is your faith dead or is it alive? I want a faith that is alive and spirit-filled and pure and powerful for Christ. Amen? Do you? Guys, that's a picture of revival. Revival is just when, when Jesus gives his bride mouth to mouth, resuscitation, and sleeping Christians wake up to who God has called you to be. Put on Christ's righteousness. Return to God's love. Every revival in history begins with repentance where it's Christians who are asleep, they get sober and wake up to their sin. They have a fresh hunger for God's word and a fresh fire of his spirit. That's the church I want to be a part of. How about you? Is that what you want? As your pastor, that's what I want for all of us. I want it for every single campus. Let's be the church that wakes the sleeping and raises the dead. Amen? Amen. Stand with me. Come on, give God a praise. Stand with me. Put out your hands. Come on. Father, we're coming to you to receive now fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, Father God, right now. Move through your church. Move through your people, Father God. We've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, if you don't judge us, there is no judgment or condemnation against us. But now, Lord, we want to live holy lives, so fill us now. Father God, I ask for your Holy Spirit just to start blowing fresh wind through our church. God, not just our church. Would you move, Holy Spirit, with power through all New Jersey churches? We're all part of your kingdom, God. We're praying for other churches. God, I pray for emergence. I pray for Zarephath. God, I pray for Renaissance Church, Evangel, uh, Christ Church. I pray for Jacksonville, Hawthorne. Holy Spirit, move, blow through your whole church in New Jersey that we may see revival in our time. And may all the glory go to Jesus Christ because it's him who does it, him who is to come. In Jesus' name, everybody said together, amen. Amen, Amen, church. Wake up for revival.